Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Last week, we were at the DICI trade show in London, the world's largest defense exhibition, where we met with a wide array of innovative technology companies as well as senior leaders. Later in the program, Rob Bassett-Cross, the founder and CEO of the leading British artificial intelligence software company, Adarda. But first, while at DSCI, we met with Dr. Maciek Klem, the CEO and founder of Poland's APS for Advanced Protection Systems, that is the maker of among the most successful Western anti-drone systems operating in Ukraine and increasingly defending NATO installations. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space sponsored our coverage of the Air Force Association's Aerospace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. Here's our conversation with Dr. Clem. Maciek, thanks very much for making time for us. We know how busy you are on the uh, show floor. Uh, as I said in the introduction, you guys are delivering um, some of the most successful counter drone capability to Ukraine and increasingly also defending uh, allied uh, capabilities as well. For example, the US Patriot batteries in Poland are defended with your uh, system uh, so that they're not struck by uh, unmanned systems. From your standpoint, what are the most important lessons from uh, the Ukraine war? Uh, and what it tells us about the future of warfare. From our perspective, there are two very important aspects. The first one, the most important one, the sheer scale of the challenge, the number of drones threats we need to deal with. Uh, the second one, uh, we, are, we are talking about a very, very wide range of threats we need to, we need to fight against uh, from a hobbyist like FPV drone all the way up to Shahid or a full uh, very advanced military military drones uh, that brings a lot of challenges to what we need to do and how we need to operate and and when you say scale you know when we were talking um, you know you, you have a sense that there were you know certainly hundreds or maybe thousands Tell the audience the sheer scale of the drone war that's going on in Ukraine now. Uh, Ukraine is showing us every day that uh, not only now, not only now, we are now every day dealing with thousands of drones. Every month there are tens of thousands of drones used by both sides in the conflict. the next decade will be about drones and anti-drones. Uh, Ukraine is the first large-scale conflict where drones are everywhere. Uh, and what's the life expectancy of these drones, right? So if it's tens of thousands of drones, how many of those actually make it through the month? Uh, not, not a lot of them. It's, at the moment, everything is being democratized. The scale of the use, tens of thousands of, of drones are used because they are cheap, they are easy to use, everyone can do it. So obviously, by definition, most of those drones are surviving only single days, most of the time on the battlefield. 
Uh, and it's fascinating that some of those designs now are cardboard, and there's a, a great Ukrainian uh, display uh, at this show uh, as well. Um, what is this, the architecture you guys are using, and what are the unique elements you're bringing to this? Because actually you guys have developed both on the detection side, the classification side, as well as the takedown side, unique technologies on all three of these. Walk us through the architecture and at what point you need to go kinetic where it's just no longer a non-kinetic uh, way of stopping these drones. Absolutely, maybe I will start again by, by talking about these tens of thousands of drones we need to deal with. Because of the scale, uh, on one side we need to provide and we are providing a very advanced capability of the multi-layered counter drone system. Uh, we have best-in-class new type of radar technology, radar sensing technology developed many years ago specifically to detect, track and identify drones. Uh, we are, in our system we have soft kill and hard kill effectors. Uh, so at the end, because as I said before, we need to be effective against very, very cheap, very small uh, plastic type of drones. On the other side, we need to be fighting against military-grade drones. Uh, solution has to be has to be composed by a very advanced sensing technology, uh, soft kill and hard kill effectors. Uh, we need to be very fast because of the number of drone threats we are dealing with. Uh, systems has to be very simple very very easy to use uh, they will also not being brutally honest they will also have a limited life uh, expectancy on the battlefield that's why we need to be we need to be able to provide our solutions uh, very fast and and uh, we were talking cost effective right because you're going to have to actually get to volume uh, given that these things do get shot uh, shot at um, how how is the drone war adapting? Um, the Ukrainians have been great at harnessing an innovation ecosystem, you know, cardboard drones I mentioned, which is kind of fascinating. And for a while the Russians were not moving as quickly, but they're actually moving dramatically more quickly. Uh, you, um, I want you to say what you told me about how to think about the Russians uh, as a threat. How are both sides innovating and adapting from your standpoint, both on the Ukrainian side, but then on the Russian side, how is the threat profile changing? Because you have to adapt to that threat profile on a constant basis. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, again, it's all about the pace of activities and numbers. So we, drones and anti-drones need to be effective. They are every day, there are new technologies being introduced, there are they are used in a smarter way by Ukrainians and Russians. Uh, so we need to be prepared that uh, there, is no, there is no luxury of having few years to develop a very sophisticated, very expensive military solution. We need to be very effective, but uh, low cost, low cost and very fast in terms of introducing uh, products into the battlefield. That is absolutely the most important thing at the moment and going forward into the future, in my view, uh, the most important element. Democratization, 
Uh, it's a numbers game. We need to be very fast. And, uh, and uh, the, the point you'd made is the Russians, may, uh, Russians have a tendency of losing the first war, but not the second war, uh, and that they are an adaptive adversary. As you look at the pace and the direction, as you look one year, two years, five years, ten years out, what, is, what are the kind of threats we should be expecting? Because many people would not have thought that we would have this kind of a pervasive drone environment, right? I mean, we had Iraq and Afghanistan that were drone wars, but nothing like this on this scale. Where do you see the threat going? And how does that drive then the defenses we need to be developing? Uh, threat profiles are changing uh, in terms of the capabilities they can offer. In the future, uh, we will be dealing with swarms of drones uh, with a high level of, of autonomy. Uh, and again, they will be everywhere. They are everywhere now. So we will be, we will be talking about ever-increasing numbers of those drones, but also with uh, very advanced capabilities they will be able to uh, operate autonomously without, uh, without human involvement to, to a large degree. That will be challenging. Um, how, you know, right now, jamming systems work, um, for example, to uh, break the link between the operator with a control station and the air vehicle. But you uh, discussed that actually even on an autonomous system you can get into that decision cycle and actually down the aircraft. How does that technology work and how do we need to be thinking if, you're gonna, if we're going to be defending ourselves against swarms of AI-enabled learning drones um, that will be launched in vast quantities to achieve a whole variety of missions, whether on the surveillance side or the strike side? Uh, absolutely. Uh... At the moment when we are talking about effectors, uh, on a, without getting into details, we are mostly talking about soft kill and hard kill uh, gun type like effectors. In the future, in my view, because of the scale and, and the capability of these new solutions, uh, directed energy solutions will, be, will need to be introduced uh, on a large scale. So we are talking about uh, microwave type uh, weapon systems, laser uh, lasers uh, becoming a part of the country drone system. They will be these type of solutions will naturally be more suited to uh, uh, to a threat being a swarm of drones, not just a single or small small number of drones. And and from a range perspective, can you give the audience a sense? on the ranges that today's systems operate. I know you can't be specific about this, but the rough ranges today's systems are operating at. And then where you envision those ranges going in the future, because the capability is becoming a longer, longer, longer range capability, right? I mean, the Shahed is sort of game changing in terms of it's not that big, but it's big enough to actually have long range. And the Ukrainians are able to shoot things that are making it all the way to Moscow. Uh, it is at the moment we are we are focusing and we can see this long range, uh, long range uh, drones. But in my view, and that's also one of the lessons we are, uh, we are learning from Ukraine. Uh, there is most of the activities are happening actually at the short, short range. That's where you need to be able to defend your high value asset, which can be 
destroyed and is destroyed every day by very cheap FPV drone. Uh, so in my view, uh, in the future, there has to be a bigger emphasis of actually, uh, maybe not intuitively, on the short-range uh, short uh, systems, drones and counter drones. And, and uh, the last question is, how quickly between the tracking, identification, and the downing of the target, how quickly is that automated sequence? It, it could be, and in, in most cases, it is in, instantaneous. Uh, if you will configure your system to, to work independently, detection and engagement of the effector, being a soft kill or a hard kill, is almost in instantaneous. What's next and can you give us a sense on the volume and where you guys are going to be as a business, say, in five years? You're partnered with MSI uh, for the hard kill with the 30mm Bushmaster system. How many have you delivered overall, if you can tell us, so that the, uh, the audience gets a sense of the size of the company and where do you want to be in five years? Uh, we are del delivering tens of systems uh, every month to, to our clients. In five years, we want to be two orders of magnitude larger. As simple as that. Maciek, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it and best of luck uh, to you guys and look forward to tracking that progress. Thank you, Vega. And joining me now is Rob Bassett Cross, a very distinguished British Army, uh, former British Army soldier who is the founder and CEO of the innovative British uh, artificial intelligence uh, and cyber company Adarga. Uh, Rob, thanks so very much for joining us. And I'm very glad that we're recording this uh, away from the uh, the, the, the throng of the show floor uh, at the Excel Center at DSEI. Well, Varga, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an uh, absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, and you and I had an opportunity to talk uh, in Washington as well uh, as, as uh, briefly at DSCI. Uh, and I wanted to first uh, you know, ask you, and we ask folks uh, to do this when they're from sort of small, innovative uh, companies, what is it that Adarga does and what is it that you do differently than others uh, in the market? So Dog is a British-based uh, software company, and we specialize in information intelligence. Uh, I guess what's unique about Adaga is we're one of the few companies that works almost exclusively with organizations in defense and national security. And we use artificial intelligence, um, uh, an AI-driven approach to help those customers uh, use artificial intelligence to, to achieve a information or a decision advantage in a world where just the sheer volume and complexity of the information they're trying to grapple with um, is, is causing them serious challenges. Um, so we have trained our AI to really understand the language of defense and national security. Uh, and the sort of users that are using this AI-driven software are the analysts, are the decision makers, the planners and commanders within those organizations. Um, one of the big uh, challenges is that roughly every six months, the amount of data we have is doubling. Uh, that both, you know, uh, makes the attack surface uh, more uh, complex, but then divining m meaningful outcomes from all of this data become the challenge. What are what are the keys architecturally to making sure that we get this right? Because you know, you can you can literally drown yourself in data make yourself more vulnerable and not make yourself any safer if you don't have the right approach. I mean, I mean you're absolutely right. The, the sheer scale, volume, complexity of data in, in the world is getting almost immeasurable. But it's not even 
at the extremes that we're having the challenge. You know, most people are having a challenge in their daily lives with their inbox. We were just the sheer amount of volume they have access to in their normal daily lives, let alone combining that with global information. So what it means is almost in any uh, knowledge intensive role, certainly that that intelligence analysts or decision makers have, is you're simply missing the advantage in the information you probably already have access to, let alone the ability to combine that with global information, for example, open source intelligence. So really what AI uh, enables you to do is if you've got an information challenge that's in that volume or complexity uh, domain, then you really need AI to help you make sense of it. If you want to be using AI, you need to do that through some sort of crucible of software. You need to be uh, making best use of data. And then you need the sort of digital infrastructure that enables you to run those software-driven, AI-driven type capabilities. So really this, um, if you will, is, is, is almost like a sort of tower block. The, the right. digital infrastructure is the concrete foundations, the data and software platforms and enablers, the floors. And really, when you get to the top, you get to the AI penthouse, which enables you to really quite exquisitely make sense of this volume and complexity challenge. But what is, uh, right, I mean, one of the things that we're grappling with here in the United States is just the staggering number of data formats we have, right? There are commercial data formats, there are heritage, um, you know, just like there are Ministry of Defense, there are Defense Department data, there are stuff the British Army does. I'm sure there are hundreds of different types of uh, data pockets in the British Army. I should tell uh, folks that uh, you're a veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan, where you paid, played kind of a key role in helping uh, sort of architect uh, ways to bring these different data flows together and actually make sense of them, operationally make sense of them. What is the architectural approach we need to take with this uh, if we are going to benefit from it, right? I mean, you know, how, how do you cope with the different data types, uh, you know, the per permissions, right? I mean, we're trying to do a, you know, a combined or coalition joint all domain command and control system. And yet we in the United States haven't really settled on what that looks like before we bring allies and partners and their own national permissions to this. How do we, how do we do this to, to get the most and the best out of it? Well, really, really, this was really the purpose of 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 my setting up a Daga. One of the one of the greatest challenges I had across that myriad of different formats, file types, data types that you've just explained was really the biggest challenge I saw was the unstructured data challenge. So, for some time, machines have been pretty good at dealing with, albeit a a complex diversity of different structured data types. That's where machines have helped us for some time. Um, it's really that 80 to 90% of your data estate that's unstructured, those modalities that are generally human generated. So, you know, we're creating a new unstructured file type here where we're talking to each other over Zoom. So that 80 to 90% is really where the power of these new natural language processing models really come to the fore. And this is really at the heart of really the breakthroughs made by large language models is if you can get a, a, a machine a model to actually understand that that's produced by humans in all of those modalities, be they images, videos, speech, or, or written text, then you're cracking probably the biggest unsolved data challenge that exists. All of that human-generated content, which, which accounts for somewhere to be between 80 to 90% of any organization's data estate. So that's really where Adaga focuses. I saw that as the biggest challenge because actually, once you can get that into a structured form that a machine can understand or make sense of, then actually you're getting somewhere towards dealing with that myriad of different types that you've 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 explained. We uh, regularly talk about public-private partnerships uh, in order 
to get to where it is we know we have to get to, uh, Rob, what what's the key to doing this? I, I think it's a greater, it has to be a greater intimacy. Um, historically, it has been our, our government, uh, our military labs and, uh, and research centers that have produced cutting edge, epoch changing technologies. Uh, just think about the advances following the Second World War and during the early stages of the Cold War in terms of propulsion, uh, nuclear weapon systems. But what's changed is that the speed of development is really coming from commercial uh, private companies. We've created very, very large private tech companies. These are now the engines of innovation. And so when we talk about uh, providing cutting edge military capabilities, some of those capabilities, and in particular artificial intelligence and software driven capabilities, are going to have to come from the private sector. So that no longer is there a simple demand signal where the governments or the militaries are going to the market and saying, hey, I need you to develop this capability. Some of those capabilities are already developed. So there needs to be a much closer, more intimate, intertwined relationship where the militaries are actually working much more closely with private companies to really understand and critically adopt much quicker some of these technologies that are what we would call commercially solved problems, but maybe haven't been adapted uh, to military use because maybe some of those commercial developers and data scientists don't actually see uh, or understand the challenge that the militaries have. So um, for me, we're not moving quick enough, uh, both in the UK and US, to forge these intimate, close partnerships between industry and our militaries. The challenge is, and sometimes the accusation made on, uh, the, at least on this side of the Atlantic, is that then actually the you know the Pentagon, for example, and the military services don't really know how to acquire this kind of capability at the end of the day, right? That they're not as good at uh, acquiring software or understanding that it's actually about licensed software, right? That they don't have to necessarily buy it and own it. Are, are you seeing a change, uh, right? Because everybody keeps talking about speed and moving more quickly and acquisition agility. Um, you know, you you were subjected to those, um, those uh, sort of buzzwords when you were in uniform. Do, do you see the ball changing the game changing at all from from where you're sitting there, there are certainly positive signs um of the military at least recognizing where the challenges lie um again I, this is where militaries can can actually look to the commercial sector who have been buying and developing software capabilities for many years so it, there is at least a, a a light at the end of the tunnel there are other large complex multinational organizations that have been able to buy and develop software. It's not just the procurement process, though. Um, and again, you're, you're absolutely right to point out that the militaries are very, very used to buying large, generally hardware, complex platforms um, that are predefined by a set of requirements up front and then delivered or developed over many years. Um, this is as much about having a much more nimble, agile approach, what, what in software we'd call DevSecOps or continuous improvements, continuous integrations. And just being much more comfortable about adopting something that maybe is um, going to be iterated many, many cycles uh, through its lifetime. Now, for some of those, th that's an absolutely uh, kind of kind of high risk uh, approach for a military that needs this thing to work absolutely to the best of its abilities day one when they cross that line of departure. So maybe some of the ways in which militaries can get comfortable with some of these uh, still developing technologies is maybe to adopt them in more of sort of back office type functions, maybe to achieve efficiencies within a headquarters back on the home soil, rather than maybe trying to use 
what are still very nascent technologies right up on the front line uh, with a soldier. So certainly where we're seeing early adoption in the British military is around achieving some of those back office headquarters type efficiencies where we know that technology has worked in a similar way for maybe a large investment bank or a law firm. Um, Let me uh, take you to uh, culture. If you're going to gain decision advantage uh, from the data, there's the technological piece of it that, uh, you know, can give you example, right? I I bring Adarga, uh, Rob and his team in to sort of help me make heads or tails of this data to shape it and to then flag the things that are most important to make me a better decision maker. But ultimately that works if you actually change your culture to empower it to actually be able to execute those decisions at the speed required, right? How much of this is a technological solution? How much of this is a cultural uh, solution? Because in Iraq and Afghanistan, in some cases, we did devolve to mission command. But in other cases, there were a lot of people making a lot of calls and a lot of long screwdrivers because people could. I, I think the military concept and doctrine of mission command is is really appropriate in the world of AI. Um, but you make a very, very good point. Uh, this is much more about culture and understanding than it is about the technology. As I've already said, many of these capabilities are what we would call solved problems. There is the ability to use models to speed decision-making, but there has to be a fundamental trust uh, between the human and the machine that is providing the advice, the recommendation, uh, the course of action, the insight. Um, And so therefore, this comes down to military education is going to have to change. We're going to have to start uh, bringing in that training uh, certainly for for more senior commanders, because I think generationally you're going to have a younger generation joining where they are used to dealing with some of these capabilities. But certainly it's also incumbent upon the the developer, uh, the Adagas of the world, to ensure that we're building this with absolutely Western values of trust responsibility embedded from code upwards. Uh, and that again comes back to ha- doing that hand in hand with the military users so they understand how we're developing these models, why certain outputs are being produced. And we do that, we do that at Adaga by having an explainability uh, methodology whereby those outputs that are produced, the insights that are produced to analysts, one can go back and actually point to maybe, say, source material as to why the model has come up with that insight. We can go all the way back and point to the analyst to the source, should there be the time to do it. But you raise a really, really good point. The adversaries that our nations may well uh, be confronting in the future may well not have that same respect of morality, responsibility, and ethics at the heart of their AI. So we are going to be potentially in a mismatch fight with other nations, in particular China, who maybe will automate the process to a far greater extent, way beyond the ability for a human to check the resource, to check the, the sources of a particular output. And that's something we're going to have to, like all militaries do, we can train for that, we can exercise for that, we can test. Um, we're still in the early days, and I'm confident that um that there'll be a balance struck um that is that that is that is extremely reasonable. Rob, an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the program uh, and do look forward to having you uh, join us uh, occasionally in the future. Thanks so very much and best of luck. Vargo, thank you very much for having me.